Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. featured artist this week is Naomi Martinez. She's an artist from the Logan Square neighborhood of Chicago. She was first exposed to art as a teenager through Chicago's Marwin Foundation and the Gallery 37 Apprentice Artist Program. She then attended Columbia College where she studied advertising, art, and design. Her work has been exhibited locally throughout Chicago's many alternative art spaces and nationally thanks to Intermedia Arts B-Girl B-Summit in Minneapolis and Unity Arts Collective in New York City. She has been a teaching artist with various arts organizations to bring murals and other public art projects to her local community. Naomi is also the co-founder of the all-woman artist collective Mujeres Mutantes, and she curates their annual art zine Mutantes. Her work is inspired by Japanese animation and the super-flat art movement, independent comics, nature, and growing up in the Windy City. Her mediums include traditional illustration, painting, DIY comics and zines, doll-making, and spray-painted mural work. I love how Naomi has created an entire world and mythology around her work. She says about her Monstro Chica, Monstro Chica sprouted from my imagination and came to life inside a swirl of vibrant colors surrounded by magical creatures. I kept working on her and all the sidekicks that started accompanying her. Pretty soon, a whole Monstro world came spilling out, complete with hungry fly traps and strange-shaped flora. So go look at her work. I will be sharing her work this week, and we'll be linking to her in the show notes as well. And if you are interested in applying to be a featured artist, you can submit your work at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. I would love to see it and share your work. Freeman spoke about studying philosophy and art and how the two continue to mesh in her work. I loved the metaphor she shared about breaking down barriers, this image of softening walls and opening doors. I imagine a space where the walls bend and squish as we reshape a more equitable, welcoming, uplifting world. She talked about the possibilities she sees in art education and how encouraging free creation is such a healing process. Emma also shared her experience with opening a shop, putting her creative work out into the world in many different formats, and leaning on her art practice to get through difficult times. Emma Freeman is a queer mixed media artist and teaching artist. She is a highly sensitive, silly, and soulful person. Emma is a tactile, experimental artist who uses many different mediums, tools, and techniques in her work, including textiles, fibers, collage, printmaking, drawing, stitching, and cyanotype. 
Art making is healing, meditative, and empowering for Emma, and she loves sharing the gifts of the creative process through teaching art classes to kids and adults. And she also has a podcast called Reflections from My Art Table. So go listen. I will link it in the show notes. Her episodes are full of poetry and wisdom. I am here with Emma Freeman, and I always like to start just with some of your background. Could you kind of walk us through your story and how you became an artist and a teacher? Absolutely. So so I'm from Wisconsin, and I was very creative as a kid. Um, I was really into theater and dance and choir from a young age, and I would dress in really funky, eclectic, weird outfits and would express myself creatively that way. I wasn't really into drawing and mm-hmm. painting when I was younger. The different art mediums, I really, I felt like actually I wasn't an artist like a lot of people do because I thought I couldn't draw, which is interesting because I look, you know, I reflect back and I had such an amazing art teacher in elementary school who was just Oh, encouraging and came up with these really cool projects. And I loved it, but I still had that mental block. Like, nope, I'm not an artist. Nope, I can't draw, you know. Uh, but then yeah. um, when I got to high school, I discovered photography, black and white photography. So I took a class when I was a freshman and just absolutely fell in love with it. I loved being in the dark room and the magic of watching images emerge and the chemical baths and just the whole experience of taking images on film and kind of going out into the world and seeing things with new eyes and kind of searching for images. It really resonated with me. So photography became my first creative obsession and passion at that point. But then when I was thinking about college, I was really exploring going to school just for photography and looked at some schools to do that. But there was something in me that wanted other options. I wasn't sure what options, but I felt like I wasn't ready to limit myself yet. Yeah. I ended up going to a liberal arts school, a very small college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when I got there, I had to take a intro to philosophy class. And at that point, I didn't know what really what philosophy was. But when I took it, oh my God, it just resonated. It it spoke to me on this deep level, like nothing else ever had. And it was just amazing. I was like, wait a second, there are more people who are just like questioning the meaning of life and uh, the world and the universe. And, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so I ended up becoming a philosophy major. But then that same, this was my first year of college, that same year, the woman that I was dating was an art major. And she was going on this, uh, it was kind of like a artist retreat over spring break, and you could get credit for it. And she asked if I wanted to come. And I was like, no, I'm not an artist. And she said I could take uh. pictures and get credit. So I thought, okay, I'll go. <laughs> so I went and it was all art majors and me. And we were out, I was taking pictures of nature. And um, it's just kind of at a point where there was a lull and I was kind of done taking pictures. And my girlfriend had some pastels and a extra sketchbook and said, you know, you could try drawing if you want, no one will see. And I was so nervous. And I was like, okay, as long as no one sees it. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
So I did. And then, you know, I drew some flowers. And and then at the end of that day, we all had to come together in a circle and share what we made and reflect on it. And it came to me and I said, oh, I took pictures of this and that. And it was all filmed, so I couldn't show anything. And my girlfriend said, and she drew. And my <laughs> face just went bright red and my heart started racing. And I was like, oh, no, like, these are real artists. They're going to laugh, of course. You know, all these things Mm -hmm. are running through my mind. So I crack open the sketchbook ready with all my justifications for how horrible they are. And everyone was so encouraging and said, oh, my God, you've never taken an art class like that's really good. You should you should sign up for some art classes. And that moment was such a huge turning point for me because it just broke down that barrier that I had inside of me. Mm -hmm. and. I went back the next semester and signed up for every art class and took printmaking and figure drawing, painting, ceramics, sculpture. I mean, everything. I just became totally immersed. It was like the floodgates opened Mm -hmm. creatively. And so I ended up doing philosophy and studio art together. And while I was exploring all those mediums, photography was still my main passion. It was still the thing that was pulling me the most. So I got a job with a photographer who did weddings and portraits and events. And I was still in college at that time. And I really learned how a photo business was run. And from her, she really mentored me and helped me really expand my photography skills a lot. And I ended up being an assistant for her on shoots and then becoming a second photographer for her business. And then when I graduated from college, I decided to move up to Minneapolis because my siblings were up there. I moved up there and knew I wanted to do something in photography still, but wasn't sure what. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine from college contacted me and she was teaching at an international school in China and said Mm -hmm. they had an opening for a third grade teacher and they needed to fill it immediately. Someone had been fired in the middle of the year, and they wanted an American teacher to come over and teach. And my friend said, you know, I think you'd be great. I had no teaching experience. I had no oh. idea <laughs> what I was doing. Wow. But with like three weeks notice, I jumped on a plane and, you know, found someone to sublet my apartment and just decided to go for it. So That was my first teaching experience. And that was a whole whirlwind. I was teaching uh, math, science, English, and social studies, third grade. So that was when I realized that I loved working with kids and had a really like a deep passion for it. And there was just kind of an ease with kids. I could be silly and goofy and like, that's a big part of my personality, but then also being able to help them, even though I also simultaneously felt like I had no idea what I was doing, you know, moment by moment, (laughs) there was also kind of this undercurrent of connection and resonance that was happening. So then at the end of that year, I was asked to teach high school art at the same school, but I was feeling really homesick. So I decided to come back to the States. When I came back, I built up my photography business and did that for 10 years. And during that time, I wasn't teaching. I was doing a little bit of mentoring with assistants and interns, but not any kind of formal teaching. And then about five years ago, I was asked to teach some community education photography classes. And instead of doing that, I asked if I could teach cyanotype or sun printing because I had just gotten into that, was really excited about that process. And they said yes. And then that kind of kicked off my teaching artist chapter career. 
And from there, I connected with another past photography client who worked at an art center in the Twin Cities and asked if I could send her some ideas for classes. And she said, yes, but we also have this teaching artist program where we send out a list of classes every month and you can sign up to teach them. And it was after school programs and at libraries and senior centers, community centers. And that was a really wonderful, expansive experience too, because I got all of these different opportunities to work with lots of kids, but also adults. Yeah. And then from there, I, I kept doing that. And then two years ago, I opened up my own community art space and retail shop and was teaching art classes to people in my neighborhood mostly, and then had to close that down in April because of the pandemic. So yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. Oh, well, I love hearing about that sort of like pivotal moment where you were, you know, so scared to show what you were doing with drawing. And then like it was just completely flipped when everyone was so encouraging. And it made me think that that's like such a big goal for a lot of teachers is to kind of like create that moment for students to be part of what breaks that barrier down. Do you feel that way too? Like you're kind of trying to help students do that? Oh, 100% all the time. I think that's my main motivator for teaching Mm -hmm. now because I had that experience and it, it transformed me. And I think I realized just how powerful encouragement is, even in the smallest way. I mean, I think so many people are hungry to be more creative but they don't know how, or they've had some experience where someone said they were bad at art or something negative happened that created a block for them. And I think as teachers and educators, we can create these opportunities to like soften those walls and open up these doors for people to start to explore these parts of them that are already there. They just need the support to explore them and discover them. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of like softening the walls. I feel like anything that's really sort of metaphorical and so visual like that just resonates. Mm. And I also would love to hear more about like your experience now with the pandemic, but also kind of where you started your own space and like how you moved from working with organizations and whether you like continued those relationships while also running your own space, just kind of how that came to be. Yeah. So I did continue working with organizations while I had my shop and I decided to open it in part because. I got to a point where I felt like I was running around doing a million different things because I was teaching in a lot of different places. I was also doing freelance photography work. And then I was doing craft fairs and farmers markets. And, you know, I was enjoying all of it, but I also felt like I was running myself ragged. And I thought the space became available in my neighborhood. And I thought, well, maybe this is a way where I could do all the things I'm doing just kind of put them all together, like give myself a home base, Mm. except the photography, but just kind of combine teaching and selling art and creating art all in one place. So I did keep teaching at a lot of the places. I tried to, it ended up being really challenging because I had base open five days a week and I was the only one working there and then would try to squeeze in, you know, I would teach some classes here and there when I could and then go and do photo shoots still. And it was tricky. (laughs) 
But, you know, it was this ongoing experiment of trying to figure out how to be creatively fulfilled and make enough money to pay for not only the expenses of the space that I had, but then my mortgage and my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pandemic just kind of put the brakes on everything all of a sudden. Yeah. A lot startling. (laughs) Do you still have that space, but it's closed down or did you have to completely give it up? So I had to completely give it up, which was a really hard decision. In early April, I was trying to negotiate with my landlord to see if he would be flexible on the rent, trying to figure out, I mean, at that point, not knowing how long we were going to have to be shut down or, you know, everything was so uncertain. And I also didn't have any financial reserves. So, you know, at the best times with that space, I was doing okay, but I had to be open five days a week and I had to be able to go Mm -hmm. and do all the other things I was doing. And then when it all stopped that couldn't happen. So I applied for the PPP loan to try to get some funding and was just trying to figure out, okay, could I, is there any way I can keep this alive? And the landlord wasn't willing to work with me and was honestly a real jerk about it. And (laughs) so I thought, okay, well, I guess, uh, I guess I'm going to close because I don't feel comfortable staying in the space and not paying rent and not knowing when I'm going to be able to pay rent. So it was a whirlwind, but I thought, okay, well, maybe, all right, I'll close down. I'll put everything in my garage. I'll work from home and just kind of figure this out, you know, figure out what my next steps are. Yeah. But then about a week or so later, my wife and I got divorced and oh, so I wow. yeah, just like life exploded. Um, yeah. So I Oof. ended up moving back to Wisconsin to stay with my parents, which is where I am now. Yeah. So just sort of like all the shop in the community art space. And that was my art studio too. That all shut down. And then I moved and put my things in storage and I've been able to teach some classes online while I've been here with some of the art centers that I've worked with before and then some new places too. So that's been really great. Yeah. And that was kind of a follow-up of how you're handling it now. But uh, that sounds like such a crazy time in the the middle of all this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just like physically having to do all the different moving, you know, moving everything out of the shop and then moving completely, you know, moving your life, but then also just how like mentally challenging and taxing everything is for everybody right now. And then to add like closing a shop that sounds like it was kind of a dream going through divorce. Uh, uh, I feel for you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. I think it, it just put me into this state of shock, I think also with everything mm-hmm. happening politically, of course, you know, just everything. So when mm-hmm. I got to yeah. my parents' house, I actually, the impact on my art has been really positive, which is interesting because it was such a tumultuous okay. experience, but we can talk more about that. Yeah. Do you feel like you've like art making for you helps sort of process and helps you through when things get tumultuous? A million percent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah. it's really become a meditation process for me. And mm-hmm. uh, 
healing process is what I turn to every day and find that as I'm working on whatever's in front of me, I'm processing thoughts and feelings and releasing a lot. And, you know, before this all happened, the things that I was creating, I was really focused on trying to sell them in the shop that I had. And so my focus for creating felt different. And now I think because of the emotional and mental state that I've been in, I haven't had the energy to focus on creating things to sell. So it's just Mm -hmm. been therapy. Like my hands just start moving and I'm creating these things and what they've ended up emerging as are these, I mean, I'm calling them mixed media meditations because they feel like they're really coming from a deeper place inside of me than any art has before in my life. And I would be curious, maybe down the road, if those become better sellers, even feel like when it does come from that deeper place, and it's so meaningful to you, it also becomes more meaningful to others. Yes, yeah, I agree. I feel like it also means maybe it's harder to part with, like you don't want to sell it, but it might be more sellable, like more in demand. Yeah, I think it's been a a really good shift in that way. And as a photographer, I always struggled with, um, I felt like I was always focused on the client first. And because Mm -hmm. of that work, you know, it really was client based, I was photographing a wedding or a portrait, I was delivering something. And I felt like, I I would often feel envy or jealousy for fine art photographers that I would see that was that were making work that I could feel was different. It was coming from a place inside of them that I knew I hadn't accessed in myself yet. And at that point I had no idea how to get it. I would emulate people and, you know, try to figure it out, but it really has been through these life experiences that have put me into this deeper place that then the art is mm-hmm. coming out. So it's been interesting to reflect on that. And, and then how, you know, when I do choose to sell or share the things I'm making, yeah, what that'll be like to release them into the world. I'm, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I know for me, it's been the hardest part of sharing anything that I feel like is more meaningful and um, more personal is just like actually writing out or sharing like what's behind it. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to give away that story. I don't really mind giving away the actual physical thing, but the story is hard to hard to share sometimes. Oh, interesting. Jumping in here to remind you that there are two weeks left to apply to our winter juried exhibition. The deadline is December 13th, so get your submissions in. Submit your work at exhibit.teachingartistpodcast.com. The guiding theme for this show is change. How are you seeing change, coping with change, and being a change maker? We would love to be introduced to new artists. All submissions will be considered for our social media, podcast interviews, blog, and future opportunities. Artists working in all visual arts media and international artists are invited to apply. The show will be juried by the incredible artist and educator Chloe Alexander, who goes by the hapless printmaker on Instagram. 
She will be selecting works for the show and helping us select eight artists to do an Instagram Live studio visit with. Then, Maria Coit and I will also be creating several lesson plans based on the themes in the show and on individual works in the show, and we will invite accepted artists to create optional brief videos about their process and inspiration. Videos have been such great teaching tools for me, which is what we would like to create. Maria and I are both artists, and we face rejection often. It's disappointing, but I also know that no one can get into every open call they apply to, so we just have to keep applying. As one way to give back to the artists who apply to our call and are not juried into the exhibit, we've asked our juror, Chloe, to offer feedback on all submissions. That's always one of the most frustrating parts of rejection for me, the not knowing what I need to improve. Was there something I could do better next time, or was my work just not quite a fit for this show? Our hope is that we can offer some helpful feedback for all artists who apply. Our dream for this exhibition space, Play Plus Inspire Gallery, is that it showcases and builds up contemporary artists of all experience levels, while also serving as a resource for teaching about contemporary art. We want to share your artwork and inspire young artists. We cannot wait to see your work. Submit your work at exhibit.teachingartistpodcast.com. Well, I would love to talk more about your work, but I want to maybe just ask a few more teaching questions first. Sure. So I'm curious, especially as like a teaching artist working in your own studio now online and like with different organizations, do you feel like you kind of have your own sort of teaching style or does it vary depending on the situation? I think I have developed a style through that I've discovered along the way. Um, I, I think my style is very playful and experimental and encouraging. And I, I try to infuse my own experiences and insights. I share very openly about how art has helped me heal in different ways and how I didn't think I could draw or didn't think I was an artist and how I broke through that. So I, I really try to share those personal anecdotes. So I hope people can relate to it and then also create an environment that is very playful and supportive. And because I, I work with a lot of kind of unexpected materials, or I work with them in, in different ways than non-traditional ways, I think that alone and the way that I like encourage people to experiment with that opens up that space to explore themselves and see what they can do in new ways. When I first started out, I was more like specifically project-based, like, okay, in this class, we're going to complete this project and that's the goal. And now I want people to create work that they feel connected to and proud of, but I almost more than that want them to discover how powerful the creative process is and how much it can help them connect to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I love that. I appreciate that shift 
like, I feel like it's more empowering the student because I definitely also started out much more like really defined project based. And the more I teach, the more I shift away from that and shift towards like, here's some techniques that we can do, but like, you know, you can also change them this way. Here's all these different like experimental things you can do. And how do you express your own voice through that? Yeah. So I I appreciate that kind of shift. Do you feel like students, especially maybe older students, like adult students, do you feel like it's harder, like they get more stuck when there's not a super clearly defined project? I've discovered, yes. So I definitely still have defined projects. I think I've discovered a balance that's working really well where I have a set project that's like, okay, you can follow this and you can achieve this thing if that's what you want. But in there, while we're doing that, I'm going to sprinkle in like, oh, but you can take it this direction. Like you were saying like, or, you know, you can play with, or what if you did this? Mm -hmm. So people feel comfortable with the container, but then they can play and discover within that because I definitely find, I find a couple of things. One, some of them are just unsure how to play. You know, so many adults have lost a connection to that part of ourselves that's Mm -hmm. in there, but you know, it's uncomfortable and you don't really know, like we've been taught that, you know, you follow the rules and then you achieve something. So I think it's really a process to help adults rediscover that sense of play, but it's also not that hard. I find that adults are really hungry for it because it feels so good when we tap into that space and give ourselves that freedom. We don't have to be in these tight little boxes anymore. And in fact, none of us actually fit in those boxes. And if we can have these tools and, and, you know, some guidance and encouragement to start to take things in new directions and see what else we're capable of. I mean, it's just endless what's possible. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Has it been tricky to shift to teaching online, especially just with using different materials that maybe aren't as accessible to people at home? How have you kind of managed that? Like, do organizations send out or do you send out materials? Yeah, it is really tricky. I'm still in the middle of trying to figure out how, how to do it well, because, you know, the hardest thing about teaching online for me is, is um, uh, not having that experience of sitting at a table with each other yeah. and having all the materials out between us and we can watch what each other's doing. And it's tactile. I'm such a tactile person. So not having that as part of the teaching experience is really hard. Yeah. Um, you know, so far I've done I did one sunprint class or cyanotype class where we sent out kits of paper mm-hmm. and then otherwise I've just sent out supply lists and people can gather things I'm working more now on some ideas for pre-recorded classes mm-hmm. and part of the reason why I want to do that is so I can record myself using these different materials and kind of walking around and collecting them so then people can watch that experience and then try to do it in their own world and environment in their own way. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not sending them a kit that they can maybe watch how I go through gathering, because I think that's kind of a mystery for people who are just starting out to or who don't have an experimental style. Like, well, I'm not really sure. Like what, how do I even start to look at my environment in a new way Mm -hmm. to look for 
maybe objects that I could make marks with or, you know, look beyond paintbrushes and, you know, traditional tools for art making. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's it's so like ingrained in me now that I don't even think about that. Like I just have collections of all kinds of random things that <laughs> my husband kind of hates. <laughs> It's like, why are we saving like toilet paper rolls? <laughs> oh my God, I have so many in my room. Yeah. <laughs> and for a while I was collecting them for like my elementary classroom because they're great for sculpture, but they're also so great for like printmaking and so many uses. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that idea though of sharing that process, like your sort of gathering process. And it makes me think that, yeah, we should be sharing like each kind of step of our creative process as something that students can see. Like, how do you do that? And I also love the idea of sharing that from multiple artists. So I'm not mm. the only voice. Totally. And because then you can watch, like, everyone has a different approach. Right. Yeah. And I try it when I'm like, if I'm in the classroom and talking, you know, usually I'll share artists that are not myself, but I'll also kind of talk about my process. And I always say, this is how I do it. But how do you think this person we just looked at might do it? Or my way is not the only way. And thinking along those lines, do you use sort of inspirational artists that you show students? Like I know some teachers don't include a lot of that, but like if you're doing a project, is it sort of inspired by a specific artist or artwork? And then if it is, are there artists that you just love sharing with students? Mm, I do a mix. I think some classes I just use what I've created as examples mm -hmm. and share that. And then I usually bring in, you know, when I was teaching in person, I would bring in a stack of my favorite art books. Mm -hmm. And some of them would connect to so if I was teaching um, cyanotype, I would bring in some books that had that but then also other ones and just say like, here are some of my favorite books by different artists and we can talk about them, but also just see what you are drawn to, you know, just as kind of like a, almost like a peripheral experience for them to have in the art room. Cause I've always kind of wanted to create the feeling of like you're in an art studio, mm -hmm. even if we're in a classroom, like yeah. I want little snippets of that. So if you glance over at a bookshelf and what catches your eye, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of experience. So that's how I do some of them. And then in some classes, I do talk about specific artists. In particular, I've been doing a drawing class online called I Can't Draw drawing class, which has been great. And I talk a lot about Lisa Congdon. Do you know? Yeah, her yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. So she was a big influence on me when I learned to like kind of rediscover drawing five years ago. I took some of her online drawing mm -hmm. classes and I really loved her approach. And I mean, her style too, would really appeal to me. So some of the ways that she taught drawing too, I find that I incorporate mm -hmm. into my teaching practice. So I do like to talk about her. In that class, I've collected a lot of examples of vintage illustrations and drawings from throughout time and different cultures that I have on Pinterest. And I share that board mm -hmm. with students because I actually don't like drawing from real life. I like drawing from other pieces of art that yeah. exist already. And so I use that board as inspiration and, you know, share those artists mm -hmm. as inspiration. Yeah. And are those like vintage photographs or they're more illustrations? 
They're more illustrations. Actually, a lot of them are these vintage matchboxes mm. from Czechoslovakia. Oh, that I found all of these images that just started to catch my eye. And I, I just started collecting them without knowing you know, just to look at them. And then I realized that in my own drawing practice, I would look at them and just pull out one little element, maybe like a Mm. tree or a little flower and try to emulate that shape. And I found that the ideas just started to flow to me when I did that, when I wasn't trying to draw, you know, make an apple look like Mm -hmm. a real apple or the thing on my desk. So that's been just really fun and exciting way to share new artists with students So I've been using a lot of fibers and textiles in my work Mm -hmm. lately. And one of the things I want to do is develop a mixed media class online and share some of the artists from around the world that I've been inspired by. So in that class, I will definitely be referencing and sharing specific artists. Yeah. And when you're thinking about artists, are you, I know for me, it's been definitely a shift over like several years to make sure that I'm providing this idea of windows and mirrors for my students. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. No, I like that. Yeah. So that idea is that you're offering them like a window. So they're looking out into someone else, someone that's different from them. And that could be that they're different in a variety of ways. So they're kind of getting a peek into different culture, just a different perspective, but that students are also having opportunities to look in the mirror and see artists that look like them and have similarities to them. So just making sure that your students are represented in the artists that you're sharing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that phrase actually originated thinking about literature in teaching. So like characters in books. Would mm-hmm. be- windows and mirrors. And then the other, what was, I'm trying to remember the author who like initiated this phrase and I can't remember her name, um, but she had a third one that was sliding glass doors. Hmm. So that's like where you open up that window and step through into a new world. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Which is just such a beautiful metaphor, right? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's definitely something I think about a lot when I'm kind of selecting artists. Mm. And a big part of it for me is breaking out of what I was taught growing up. I got the typical like Western canon, the quote unquote old masters of a bunch of dead white men Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how to not have that be the only thing I show students. So I love how you mentioned, you know, you're showing Lisa Congdon. Are there any other artists that you feel like are important for students to see or any other ways you could envision yourself making sure students are represented and also getting to see like a window into a new world? Well, with the textile artists and fiber artists in particular, I'm discovering that, you know, I'm looking at Boro textiles from northern Japan and things that were made a long time ago by people out of necessity. You know, we don't know who the artists are who created them, but they're so rich in, I mean, in the artistry and the stories and the history and the experiences. And there's so much mystery and nuance and subtlety there. And, and also kind of like the artist is a little bit invisible. Like we don't know their name, but they're very visible because the work is there. Mm. I like to talk with people and share because there's so much work out there that's like that from different parts of history, but also even 
now. Like I think, again, with textile specifically, I see it happen where, you know, the like boho trend. I don't know if you know, like the like interior design, because I was kind of in that world with my shop. I was reselling secondhand and vintage things in my shop. I didn't mention that. Um, You know, with the boho trend, I found that something really started to bother me because I felt like artists weren't being almost like given the respect of their work. So like mud cloth pillows Mm -hmm. and, you know, these different textiles from around the world, that aesthetic is meant to look eclectic. And like you've, you know, you've traveled and you've gathered all of these things, but it felt to me like the stories were missing or like Mm -hmm. the you know, like the connection to the culture and the people and honoring that and acknowledging it. Yeah. And I think that's part of why and how I, I like to talk about, you know, and share with students um, just through my like what's inspiring to me and how I not only like to look at these textiles, but I really, you know, I try to watch, find videos if I can of people creating them and read about their lives and try to really get as deep as I can. So then not only like show respect and honor the people who created these things, but it also really deepens the experience of sitting with that piece of art, I find. Yeah, definitely. I think that uncomfortable feeling is like appropriation that you're seeing these art forms being appropriated and not given any credit or context. And that's a big problem. Right. Yeah. And that there's just, it's actually like, it's such a richer, more connected experience to just do a little bit of that work to discover mm-hmm. what's the story behind something, you know, or to, because then it creates a deeper relationship with that artist, with that person, with that culture, you know, and that's what we're all hungry for anyway, even if we don't know it, you know, it feels better. So yeah. I try to make it more emotional and visceral rather than intellectual mm-hmm. because that's what resonates for me too when I'm learning things and to try to share that with people too. Yeah, those stories and the feelings that they create. Yeah. The other thing I feel like maybe not totally consciously, but part of not wanting to dive deeper and do that research is like what happens when you discover that, oh, actually this art form is like a sacred spiritual thing that only these people from this culture really are allowed to do. And like, I shouldn't be using it at all. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) When you discover that and you're like, okay, well, I guess I got to change that, change that plan. Right. That also feels like such a doorway to, Mm -hmm. to then experience or I don't know, reflect on how art making can be so sacred and can be a spiritual experience. And maybe, maybe I can't use that same thing in the same way I was, but how could, is there something about that that speaks to me? Maybe there's somewhere I could go with that within my own practice or I don't know. Right. Yeah. I've seen, yeah, I've seen art teachers kind of turn that around in exactly that way. Like rather than, okay, well, we're going to make this dream catcher instead, maybe having a unit where you talk about dreams and like, what are the meanings behind them and how can we express that? So kind of looking at like the questions that that sacred art piece was asking and like ask those within your own work. That's beautiful. That was a totally random example. I don't know. I haven't done any research research on dream catchers. So <laughs> I don't know what the story is behind them. 
you have tips for teachers, especially teaching in this crazy time, working online, if you have anything that's really helped you through it, whether that's like specific tools, specific like software or anything or books or just like tips of this is working really well for me. And then we'll get into your work. Yeah, I'm, I mean, what's helping me a lot through this experience and may help other art teachers is not separating art making from what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And the way that I'm doing that is like, it's becoming my therapy. It's becoming the space where I can process Mm -hmm. and release, even if I'm not making something that tangibly looks like, you know, I'm not making um, realistic imagery or a reflection of the political situation or anything like that. I'm more processing just the messy tornado of feelings and experiences that are going on inside. And that that can be so helpful, not only, I mean, for us teachers, artists, because we're also artists, but also for the students. And, you know, that it's also such an ongoing creative process and practice always, obviously teaching is, but I think this time, even though it's totally insane and stressful and really, really difficult in so many ways, I think there's part of it that's a gift in some ways or can be in terms of, we have a lot of material to draw on for creative outlets, like for that creative expression. And if we can keep harnessing that for ourselves and for our students and also reveal like, we don't really know, we're taking this day by day. We're just trying to find our way through this all together. And how beautiful is that to be not only vulnerable in that way, but also just really present in life and messiness Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to just acknowledge and share that and the powers of art making to help us get through all of that. Yes. I feel like that's all super helpful. Just to hear also that it's not only okay, it's like wonderful to be vulnerable and be really present with your students and that that can help them a lot and maybe help you as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. (laughs) So thinking about your work, and I feel like that just kind of like hearing how you're expressing how you're dealing with (laughs) everything going on through art and through teaching really ties in with what it is you're working on. I'm trying to think like, would you want to try to describe your work for someone who hasn't really seen it? It's always a hard thing. Sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> right now I'm making abstract mixed media work. So I'm using a lot of mm-hmm. different papers and textiles, fibers, and some natural objects like um, little stones and found wood, birch bark, things like that. And I'm using tea bags and cheesecloth and mm-hmm. um, upcycled fabric. And I'm doing there's a lot of texture and a lot of organic shapes. So lots of circles and lots of marks, simple marks, lots of um, color play and patterns too. So it's all kind of very quiet and meditative and kind of peaceful looking. I think that's the feedback I've gotten from people when they've seen it. And that feels right when I look at it. Yeah, it does feel very like meditative and peaceful. And that's so interesting. So because needed. Right see, now. It, it feels those things, but it's coming from this place of turmoil inside or like, you know, messiness. So I think that's amazing and fascinating that yeah. it actually what can emerge is like, it's like the breath got released. It's like this, ah, oh, like the oh, release. I did an exercise that I kind of created thinking maybe this will help my elementary students be able to release emotions in art. 
where, you know, we're just kind of drawing like one version is we're drawing a circle and you're just like your hand is moving around and around in circles. And as you do that, you kind of just breathe out. And we, I say like, like breathe out the negative emotions, like imagine them going into the paper and then take a breath in and breathe in like anything good, breathe in joy. And just that imagining the emotions going into the artwork. Then I had this thought like, well, is this artwork just going to be like, completely full of all these bad things. <laughs> it's a container holding all the negative emotions. Yeah. What a powerful thing for people to experience that they can put those negative emotions yeah. somewhere that's not rage or violence or, you know, it doesn't get stuck in their bodies. Like they can, it can come out into this form. That's so powerful. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I did it like thinking, oh, this is for them. And I was like, no, this mm. is for me. <laughs> this is now, now I need to start every like studio session with this little exercise and just like release the tension, like let it all out. Yeah. It's all okay. Do you know about the, um, about Enzo's, this, the Zen circle paintings? Mm. Oh, no. What you taught. Oh, it's so in alignment with that. I think. Up. You would enjoy um, yeah. learning about that. It's in Zen philosophy, they're uh-huh. Zen monks uh, in calligraphy painting. They would paint circles as part of their spiritual practice. And many people would paint them each day or as, you know, part of also poetry. And well, they say like it reflects presence and being in the moment and also wholeness and mm-hmm. the artist, you know, their mm-hmm. hand, it's this, qu- it's in one breath. So it's not, you know, you don't think about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it reminds me a lot of what you're doing. Oh, awesome. Thank you. I will have to go look that up because I love that. There's another sort of version that I had done in the past, a drawing with both hands where you're like, you have a piece of chalk. Um, This time I use just like crayons in each hand and you tape your paper down and draw kind of like symmetrically, like your hands Mm -hmm. are both moving together. But for this more just like warm up meditation, it would be kind of the same thing that you're just like, it doesn't matter if they move together, you're just letting your body move and not worrying about what image it's making and just like breathing and letting out whatever feelings you have. But having both sides of your body move like there's I have read some, um, there's some article I have to see if I can link it about what that does in your brain when you have both sides moving Mm. at the same time, that that kind of like, triggers connections in your brain. Oh, that's amazing. And I can imagine too, that that could open up like new awarenesses about what your hands can do too, the kinds of marks you can make and, you know, and it just physically too, what does it feel like to move both of your hands and all of that? Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, those are such fun, just like little warm ups, but also can be turned into like really amazing, Mm, full artworks. Lots of fun. And I feel like just looking at your work, there's so much like I see like repetition of of these marks. And looking closely, I can see that there's like embroidery there. But I'm almost picturing you like, just like Mm. tapping, like (laughs) making these marks repeatedly. It is an interesting almost this interesting like juxtaposition of how I can imagine that process not being super calm and slow, but looking at the artwork itself, it does feel like calm and slow. I find that when I sit down and create the art, it is actually really slow and meditative. I'm physically moving really slowly and it kind of puts me in that, you know, that flow kind of trance feeling space. 
But then it's like, like that's happening. And then simultaneously, there's this storm of feelings and, you know, things are, and it like that repetition of stitching or mark making, I find that so, I just keep coming back to it. I, right now, especially it just is so soothing. And it also feels like kind of, um, I can't, when I try to conceptualize an idea, anything beyond doing something like that, I just don't have the capacity or energy for it. So I find that it's that, it's that kind of rhythmic, slow, just making the same marks over and over. And then they end up looking a little bit different. You know, there's variations and subtleties Mm -hmm. that I end up really liking in there. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's something that's like one of the is it an element of art or maybe a principle of design? One of the, those things we try to teach students is this idea of variety within yeah. repetition. Yeah. And you definitely have that. And then also like looking at your website and thinking about how you had your shop. Um, I'm curious to hear your sort of tips and how you kind of make the business side of it work, just how you kind of sell your work and how you're thinking about that and what yeah. has worked well for you. Well, the having the physical shop was really great because, you know, people would come in who I had never met before and I got to share what I was creating with them and then they would go tell their people and they'd send them in and that was really yeah. wonderful. And also just yeah. uh, a, a really nice way to have more conversation around what I was making because I also sell a lot on Etsy, which has been great, but I don't get that personal connection. You know, sometimes I'll get a little message from someone about Mm -hmm. something, but getting to just have a conversation with a person and connecting over color or a quote or something, you know, having that relationship, even if it's for two minutes. I love that. The shop was a big thing. And then before that, craft fairs and farmers markets. And then I have been selling, uh, I make greeting cards Mm. from my drawings and illustrations. And I sell those to different shops, which has been really good too. And then I use Mm -hmm. Spoonflower. Do you know about that website? Yes. That's fun. I've been making some fabric from my drawings. And Society6, I use too. But now I feel like those are all kind of existing. Now I've had those for a little while and keep trying to figure out maybe, you know, other things I want to add to them or how well they're working. But now with the new work, I'm starting to think about for the first time entering shows or trying to have an exhibit, you know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of a new world that I'm going to try. Yeah. And like working with galleries, which I've done a little bit of when I was making cyanotype, I worked with Mm -hmm. a gallery in the twin cities and sold some there. And that was wonderful. And I like that relationship, you know, being able to connect to new people and also create these new pieces. I keep imagining having a gallery show that's a whole full sensory experience. And that, you know, thinking about like, what could that look like incorporating movement and sense and tactile, you know, having the materials that I work with out so people can touch them in addition to looking at the pieces. So I'm thinking about, you know, like creative ways to keep sharing and selling work, but that's more of a full experience for people rather than just, I'm going to buy this thing and that's it. We're done. You know? Right. There's such a difference too in those two experiences. Like someone who's maybe looking for like a really specific greeting card 
isn't going to necessarily be interested in that full experience. Someone interested in your sort of meditative work might really love to hear more of the process and background and then might even like buy more because they know that story and background. Yeah. And I think because the work is coming from a deeper place and there's so much behind it now, I feel Mm -hmm. like I really want to make those connections. I want to share more of the full story or more of the full experience with people. Mm -hmm. And that feels different than, you know, selling greeting cards. I'm totally fine, you know, sending a bunch of them off somewhere and they can sell them and that's great. Yeah. (laughs) This feels, this feels different. So Mm. yeah, we'll see. And I just saw that you actually have a podcast also. Oh yeah. I was going to tell you, I just started it. Yeah. (laughs) Would you want to talk about that at all? Sure. I decided to start it actually just a few weeks ago because I'd been thinking about it a while. Cause like I said before, you know, podcast junkie, you know, it's been so helpful to hear other artists stories and have their voices in my ears and learn from them and also just hear what their journey's been. And it's been just transformative and really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. I'm also a very introspective and reflective person. And so I have all of these things that I just talk to myself about, about <laughs> art making, about, you know, reflecting on the creative process, on teaching. And I started making this list on my phone of possible podcast ideas before I started it. What would I talk about? I came up with like 40 topics. So I was like, <laughs> okay, maybe I should give this a try. Yeah. It's called Reflections from My Art Table, and I'm thinking of it as an extension of my teaching practice and my art practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm sharing some things about my process, like how I've worked through different things, my story, poetry and quotes that are inspiring me, books, Mm -hmm. resources. I'm really trying to share just everything that has helped me, but also is resonating with me that relates to art and creativity. Awesome. Yeah. I will have to give it a listen. I love that. One question that I feel like I hear sometimes and looking at all the things you're doing, I don't know if this actually ever happens to you, but this question of like, how do you get past or overcome creative block? Do you feel like you still have creative block sometimes? Yes, I do. But I think they're way less frequent because of how I've built up my art practice because I'm using so many different mediums and different Mm -hmm. materials. And I've discovered through doing that I work best and my ideas flow to me when I just start working with materials, when I don't have a specific idea in mind, then, then they start to emerge. So because that's happened enough times, I know when I feel that feeling of being stuck or like, Oh, I don't know what to do next. If I can remind myself, okay, just start playing. Let's just do some stitching or I'm going to, dye some tea bags, or I'm going to flip through an art book and look and just see if anything pops out at me. And Mm -hmm. I think I've learned along the way too how important it is to fill my creative toolbox. So to Mm -hmm. give myself resources to draw upon. So even things like having Pinterest, so I can go on there and look through what I've gathered over the last couple of years and see what jumps out at me in that moment. Because I think when I was younger, you know, I didn't know. So I just thought either, you know, oh, you have this image in your mind and you can draw it. And that means you're an artist. And Mm -hmm. That's it. So if you can't do that, you're not an artist. But Uh, now I know, oh, no, it's like this constant process of absorbing and just seeing what lights me up and what resonates and then just taking these tiny little steps 
with some of those things. And that's what helps me the most with creative blocks. Uh, Yeah, I love all of that. Having materials, but also books and online resources. And then this idea of like tiny steps. Yeah, I definitely do kind of the same thing. So I would love to hear more about your sort of just like fitting it all in and like what a week looks like for you. Yeah, it's so like, I mean, before this time, it was so different. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, So what I tend to do is get up in the morning and I have a little art table in my bedroom and that's where Mm -hmm. I've been making everything. And I sit here and drink coffee and I... I work on whatever's in front of me. So usually, you know, it's these something, it's making marks or stitching. And I usually during that same time, I read and write. I found early in the morning is when I get the most creative ideas Mm -hmm. that come to me, which is totally different than six months ago. I was making art in the cracks of my life and I had no, you know, my rhythm and days were and weeks were so different. So it's been a gift to discover that and be able to sit in that space and have that time to actually develop an art practice like a designated Mm -hmm. time. So then I'll take a break in the afternoon a little bit. And then I tend to work on teaching in the afternoon, either teaching art classes or developing ideas and, and work on the business side of things. So updating my website and Mm -hmm. putting things on society six and you know, all those other administrative things. Yeah, those are the things that kind of bog me down. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. Some fun, more like get to know you questions. What are you curious about right now? Ooh, I like that question. I I know know, I saw it on the list, but I like it. (laughs) That's great. What am I curious about? I feel like I'm really curious about texture. I'm really drawn to texture and like the mystery and nuances of texture. So mm-hmm. I find myself looking out the where I live, there are some woods behind our house. And I find that I'm just like staring at lichen on tree bark and mm-hmm. moss and like seeing the, I feel like there's whole worlds inside of texture that I'm experiencing. Yeah. And it just keeps, it's like this magnet keeps pulling at me. Uh, and then I'm also really curious about the connections between spirituality and art making and creativity and how for mm-hmm. me they're emerging and intertwining. Mm-hmm. So I've been really kind of exploring that all those connections too. Ooh. And I feel like with your um, background in philosophy, like that could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, Do you feel like that comes into your work a lot? Yes, which, yeah, totally. I think because I'm naturally, like I said, like very introspective and reflective and I'm highly sensitive. That's just how I'm wired. And I think I see the connections between philosophy and art making. They're just, they they coexist constantly. Mm -hmm. And as I've been doing more healing work on my own self over the last few years, it's deepened that connection. I've been able to access more of it and find those threads between them. Mm -hmm. And I'm also seeing how much the combination of those two is a gift, which I didn't see at all when I was younger. I felt so lost and felt like I had no idea where I was going or what I was doing with my life. And I thought other people did. I thought I was supposed to have a plan. And I think discovering philosophy and through all the life experiences, I've realized, oh, no, this is this is just how I'm built. And actually, 
if I can harness them and really like tune in to that like philosophical part of me and the creative part and share them together. Yeah. That not only that can help me express myself, but I think I can help other people through teaching with those intertwined. Yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. Okay. I have just a very fun, like kind of silly question. What's your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? (laughs) So when I lived in the Twin Cities, Mm -hmm. I had other favorite restaurants that I relied on. But now it's so different. I'm in a small town, so there aren't a lot of options. (laughs) But there is a really good Indian restaurant. And I love samosas. Those are my favorite right now. So I think, yeah, samosas. In fact, now I want them right now. (laughs) Yeah. What's yours? Um, I always go for like a salmon avocado roll sushi. Mm, Delicious. Which we haven't really done any like restaurants since March, since all of this hit. I haven't had any and I miss it. I want some. Yeah. Yeah, We've just been like probably overly cautious with everything. Probably smart. (laughs) Sometimes I feel bad asking that question because I know like on a few levels that there's like a class component there, but then the added layer of like the pandemic and people that aren't able to go to restaurants. Yeah, it's a complicated time. (laughs) I mean, it feels kind of like, oh, I long for it, but it's also kind of fun to dream about food. Yeah, I can't have it, you know, (laughs) it still feels good kind of. Yeah, the dream food. I had the opportunity to go to Japan a few years ago and eating sushi there at high end, you know, restaurants that are like we can afford it once every five years or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like really the favorite thing. But like a go to order, I feel like is more often (laughs) than that dream food. Have you watched um, the Netflix series, A Chef's Table? I haven't watched all of it. I've watched some of them. Yeah. Speaking of dreaming about food, but also creativity. Mm -hmm. And I find all of that so satisfying because it feels like I've been watching it during the pandemic and I find that it's a way to travel without traveling. And it's also watching artists in a different medium do what they're so amazing at. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I think there is one in Japan that is wonderful. There's one in Korea that's phenomenal this monk who makes incredible food anyway that's another fun thing yes i will have to turn that on one of these evenings during the day for us it's filled up with either like my daughter having online classes or having like break time where she's like i want to watch this cartoon oh yeah (laughs) we're like please no more screen and no more like (laughs) oh just these little like cartoon voices all the time (laughs) Do they get into your mind? Like, are they part of you? Yeah, we're like singing the theme songs. for. (laughs) Is there anybody that you would want to give like a thank you or a shout out to? Oh, that's a nice question. Yeah, a photographer I worked with many years ago named Doug Beasley was such a mentor to me in many ways. And I find that actually what he taught me back then is still teaching me now. I'm revisiting it, especially during the pandemic. He has a very spiritual approach to photography. And when I was working with him, I was intrigued by it, but it didn't like totally resonate with me yet. I was in my early 20s and just wasn't quite there, but I wanted to, you know, there's something 
there was something that spoke to me. And I think now I'm coming back to that. And mm-hmm. I'm just finding he's written a couple of books, and I've been reading them and revisiting his work and mm-hmm. been such a gift in my life. And he's just been a dear friend and so open about giving me opportunities and also feedback on the things that I've created. And he's been one of those teachers that has changed my life. Uh, everybody needs somebody like that. That's so amazing. And last thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? So my website is emmafreemandesigns.com. And then on Instagram, I'm emmafreemandesigns and Facebook, emmafreemanart. Cool. Awesome. And I will link to all of that. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emma. It was really great to hear your background and story, but also just approach to art and teaching and life. So thank you. Thank you. You're such a great interviewer. And it was such a gift to connect with you and talk about art and teaching. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. I especially loved hearing about how she's overcome creative blocks and overcome that fear of not being good enough. I feel that so much. Do you? When Emma talked about feeling like if you can't draw realistically super well, you're not an artist, that resonated so much with me. Her way out of that struggle through play and exploration is so gentle yet so powerful. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.